This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. You are listening to Live and Learn. I'm Lee Chui Lin. Behind the glamour and glory of competing at the Olympics lies an inadequate financial infrastructure to support athletes. A majority of the 11,000 Olympians will count themselves lucky just to not be financially broke when the games end. One interesting development on track and field is that athletes without sponsors or who are prohibited by their sponsors from wearing a competing brand will be covering up their shoes logo. Sports lawyers Richard Wee and Leslie Lim are here to talk about athlete sponsorships and to a certain extent, ambush marketing. Uh, so this idea of um, you know having to cover up your shoes logo, where does that come in? Well, the contracts that uh, and the deals and the sponsorship agreements which uh, the Olympic Council, the IOC, have with their main sponsors, uh, usually those deals would include terms uh, which would state that the sponsor's logo would be the sole prominent logo. Uh, so, without mentioning any particular uh, sports brand, so if sports brand X have signed a contract with uh, uh, IOC, they would not like to see brand A on, on, the, on the badge. So, I believe uh, what's happening in the track and field is that, that there is some uh, deal which uh, has been agreed uh, to have an exclusive sponsorship of brand X, and brand A, B and C are not permitted. So we, we are seeing that happening now in, in Rio. Why do you think corporations have always been drawn uh, towards track and field? What aspects of it makes it you know, commercially compelling? Well, I must say that uh, track and field is one of the highest uh, television rates, uh, should I say, television returns uh, for the Olympics. or so even the, the ASEAN Games and the SEA Games, uh, one of the most exciting things to watch during this tournament is actually the track and field. So with so much uh, media attention to it, uh, it immediately draws into sponsors. And also the uh, the sexiness of the event, you know, the 100 meter race and 200 meter race, both for men and, and women, uh, is actually the epitome of uh, speed, power and strength. And, uh, you know, athletes like Usain Bolt, um, uh, Carl Lewis, these are, they are uh, legends in their name because of the, what they have done. So sponsors would want to be connected to that legendary status, you know. So hence the the connection between sponsors and track and field. So we've been using the word sponsor, but you also hear words like endorsement. Um, is there a difference between an endorsement deal and a sponsorship? Well, uh, <laughs> oh, hot, hot. Uh, I'm going to pass it yeah. to Leslie. Yeah. <laughs> so just generally, uh, sponsorship is basically uh, where sponsors or a company uh, gives money. Uh, and they expect something in return. So the very common thing that you see is um, uh, a brand sponsors an event, and in return, uh, the event at the venue, you will see their banners. Uh, so that's an example of sponsorship. Uh, endorsement is more towards where a uh, athlete uh, shows their support for a particular brand or a product, and in return, they, of course, get compensation. So uh, one example would... Um, be uh, Jordan, Michael Jordan and Nike, uh, which is of course developed into this multi-million dollar uh, brand that uh, Jordan has with uh, Nike uh, today. So uh, in return, the sponsor basically gets the right to use the athletes, uh, their name, their image, their likeness uh, in connection with the sponsor's uh, brand or services. So yeah, that's generally the difference between uh, sponsorship and endorsements. 
A lot of athletes um, don't draw annual salaries as such, um, and they struggle financially without sponsorships. The IOC or the International Olympics Committee doesn't pay appearance fee or um, prize money at the games. Should this position be reversed? Uh, well, the um, uh, the IOC uh, or even for the matter FIFA or any international organization, they will not pay for the appearance fee, it, and it makes sense uh, simply because you're invited to take part in the tournament. Um, uh, since you've agreed to come for a tournament, then welcome aboard. Uh, that's the first thing. So therefore, the uh, athlete's uh, financial well-being should be taken care of by the uh, the National Association of that country. So like Malaysia, for example, uh, I'm aware that our athletes are financially taken care of. I'm not sure the quantum. That, that I can't comment. But most athletes, uh, or in fact all the athletes who take part in the Olympics, are, are, are financially maintained. They're taken care of. So that will help the athletes to have a peace of mind. At the end of the day, actually, I think the main thing here, Lin, is this. While the athletes want to enrich themselves or we want to see the athletes enrich themselves either way, the key thing is that the athletes must be uh, mentally and spiritually calm during the sports. And he or she will not be happy uh, if he he's not sure whether there's money tomorrow to pay his house, you know, or her, her family, you know. So... Uh, that's the re- main reason how this concept came about to compensate the athlete. But of course, it's the last forty years is evolved into this huge multi-billion-dollar uh, sponsorship deals. So to answer your question, I don't think it needed to be uh, reversed simply because these tournaments are on invited basis. Uh, we don't realize actually you're invited to take part. Not it's not you. <laughs> it's not a, my, my God-given right. I must take part. You know. Uh, what IOC does is that they actually compensate the national associations. There's always some financial uh, uh, dealings between the IOC and the, the country's uh, local IOC, uh, in Malaysia's OCM, where there's some kind of uh, uh, agreement, uh, uh, bursary, or, uh, you know, it, it happens. Uh, but I think the better person to answer that would be someone from OCM. Right. Yeah. Um, although we've been talking fi- uh, primarily about athletes um, and athletes and marketing, but there's also something in sports called ambush marketing. Uh, um, what, what is that? Well, Lin, um, it's happened many times. I, I recall, um, I'm, I mean, I'm speaking off the cuff, so I, I could be inaccurate. In Sometime in 2010, the World Cup in South Africa, uh, Football World Cup, uh, there was an event occasion where in one of the matches, a group of uh, people were in the stadium wearing very bright shirts. It could be either orange or pink. And what they were doing is they were promoting a product of a company. And of course, the FIFA was uh, not, not happy. FIFA removed uh, the group. Um, that, that's a classic example of ambush marketing. Or in the case of track and field, which is a topic today, if uh, a, a watch brand signs a sponsor with a prominent athlete, uh, say Usain Bolt, and you see Usain Bolt suddenly wearing this watch while while he's running, uh, that that is another way of <laughs> ambush marketing. At the very last minute, you made him wear the watch, for example. Uh, but the classic ambush marketing is actually engaging a certain amount of, for example, spectator to appear at a particular place in the in the arena and make themselves seen visible and with the advent of social media the extent and the reach of social media ambush marketing can sometimes be more effective than the the main uh, sponsorship between uh, the track and field and, and the sponsors for example so that's that's an example of ambush marketing literally ambushing the event and, and making yourself seen 
Considering how uh, tricky it is to to deal with, I mean, what are you going to do about spectators? What are you, how are you going to control? Are you going to make everybody take off their shirts before they come to yeah, the arena? That's, that's the thing. Um, um, how how do you protect um, how do you protect the event against ambush marketing? Um, at the moment, uh, from what we have seen, uh, there's very little way of controlling it. Uh, I think organisations like FIFA and the Olympic Councils. Uh, I mean, how do you actually stop someone and say, "Hey, can I check your bag first? Can I check what you're wearing inside?" You know, when I sell a ticket to you, please answer these ten questions. You know, so I, I, I think uh, from our case studies that we have seen in the states and uh, in Europe, um, it's pretty difficult to to control. So one way is uh, I give you an example. One way is this, um, like uh, another classic ambush marketing. I, I want to address is television, where. Uh, a sponsor conveniently buy a advertising spot just before the that particular event. So you know, at ten a.m. there will be a uh, track and field event. So he buys at the, the sponsors buys at nine fifty nine, and it will appear there. So people will actually watch that spot. So what people do now is, that, let's say, if uh, uh, the track and field is sponsored by Brand X, Brand X now will buy even the advertisement spot on TV and radio. Half an hour before and half an hour later. So that's one. In the stadium, uh, now you can see it's very common. Uh, brand X will probably give out free shirts so that everyone wear their shirt. Or uh, you've seen the, uh, in, like in badminton, the, uh, brand A will give uh, this flapping thing which looks like a hand clapping thing. Uh, it's actually a way to fight off ambush marketing to overwhelm the ambush marketing because there's a lot more of my product than your product in the stadium so that's how they go around so people get people are excited oh I get I get free stuff but actually what's happening is that the marketing people are trying to stop ambush marketing so instead of trying to totally stop that kind of uh, ambush marketing what most sponsors have done is they try to overwhelm it and uh, uh, you know beat them at their own game as so per se yeah, I mean, um, in the US, I think they've taken a little bit more serious steps. Uh, I think recently for the Rio 2016, uh, there was a particular uh, athletic apparel company. Um, I'm trying to recall the name. I think it's Oixil or something along those lines. So it, it became to an extent where the uh, US Olympic Committee actually sent them a letter of demand, uh, demanding that they remove certain content on social media, uh, failing which the US Olympic Committee would actually take legal action uh, against the brand. So I think, uh, yeah, it, it depends on the seriousness of the situation. And clearly that was a very serious case, you know, to, to, to take legal steps in that direction. I'm speaking today with lawyers Richard Wee and Leslie Lim and we're talking about the Olympics and sponsorship as well as marketing and really ambush marketing to a large degree. Up next, we talk a little bit about Rule 40 um, in the IOC. You are listening today to Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Good afternoon. You are listening to Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture. I'm Lee Chui Lin. In the studio with me today, sports lawyers Richard Wee and Leslie Lim. And we're talking about the Olympics and sponsorship and marketing. Now, the IOC, um, or the International Olympics Committee, has a rule called Rule 40, which prevents athletes from advertising for non-Olympic sponsors just before and during the Games. Uh, what is Rule 40 exactly? Is it fair? Um, before I, I jump into Rule 40, i just give a little bit of background. So there's Rule 7 of the Olympic Charter, which basically grants the International Olymp Olympic Committee, which we call IOC, uh, exclusive ownership 
uh, over certain Olympic uh, brands, so to speak. So that in- involves uh, that includes the uh, Olympic rings, uh, the Olympic flag, the torch, the flame, emblems uh, along those lines. Just to give you an idea of the magnitude of this protection that the IOC has, uh, the IOC actually requires host countries, countries that are going to host the Olympics, to enact specific uh, intellectual property legislation granting trademark protection to the IOC. So that's the kind of magnitude that we're looking at. So Rule 40, as you mentioned, Lynn, uh, is basically whereby non-sponsors of the Olympic Games and athletes are not allowed to mention about their relationship uh, during a blackout period. So this blackout period happens um, nine days before the start of the opening ceremony, uh, up until three days after the closing ceremony. So people like us, individuals, uh, news media like BFM, uh, and official sponsors, McDonald's, uh, Procter & Gamble, Visa, Coca-Cola, we can talk about the games freely but um, if you're not you don't fall in those categories basically you cannot speak about the Olympics so it involves a whole range of things um, Olympic has uh, trademark uh, words and phrases this includes words like Olympic Olympian Team USA go for the goal let the games begin Paralympics so it's this whole range of words and these are all trademarked um, you cannot even use words that incorporate the word Olympic Mathlympics um Aqualympics, Chicago Olympics, Radio Olympics. Um, it, it, it even reaches to an extent where you're actually not even allowed to wish the athletes good luck if you're a business that's not one of the official sponsors. So I know it seems all doom and gloom, uh, but on the bright side, what's happened of late uh, is that in February 2015, uh, the IOC announced um, some changes in their rules. And uh, this, what this change allows is... Uh, it allows athletes to actually appear in generic advertising uh, which do not explicitly mention about the games or use any of the uh, Olympic intellectual property. Um, and so I can't stand there with my gold medal, for instance. Can I do that? Yeah, you can stand with your gold medal, but you cannot um, basically uh, show off the brand that you actually have a personal sponsorship with. Uh, during the period of the games. So I'll give you an example of, of one brand who did this brilliantly. Um, it's actually Under Armour. Uh, I, I don't know if you've seen the the, the ad. Uh, Under Armour had this ad which they did for Michael Phelps. So um, it basically portrayed the most decorated Olympian in history preparing for his last outing at the games. Uh, very brilliantly done. There was no mention at all. Uh, about the Olympics and whatnot. But when you're watching it, you clearly, there's this implied line and you know that he's preparing for the Games. Uh, And he even ends with this phrase, um, it's what you do in the dark that matters and that's what puts you in the light. So uh, it was really, really brilliantly done uh, by Under Armour. uh, And uh, Under Armour was, of course, uh, one of the very happy parties uh, of this rule change because to them, it fulfilled their objective of being able to support uh, their athletes uh, or at- Olympic hopefuls who are tied to the Under Armour brand. And Under Armour actually um, sponsors something like 250 uh, Olympic athletes, uh, even though Under Armour is not an official sponsor of the Games. Um, but that's the, the happy side of it. So, But there are, of course, businesses who still think that even with the rule change, um, things are, are still very uh, restrictive because, of course, this rule change uh, comes along with certain requirements, one of which is uh, a, a waiver has to be submitted uh, in January 2016. So some businesses say, oh, you know, January 2016 is a little bit early because some athletes don't even 
know uh, at that time whether or not they have actually qualified for the Olympics. Um, the other thing is that the ad must actually start running from March. 2016. And for smaller businesses, this can be very expensive because it basically means for them to uh, hinge on, you know, the Olympic Games and to benefit from it commercially, they actually need to run their ad from March to August. And that's very expensive for, for small businesses. Um, the other downside that, that some parties have raised is that um, if I'm an Olympic sponsor, I feel that this rule change uh, has actually devalued uh, my sponsorship, the rights that I've paid millions of dollars from. And just, uh, I think, Coca-Cola paid London 2012 about $100 million to be an official sponsor. So now that the gates are opening up just slightly for all these you know, uh, non-sponsors to come in and do these generic um, uh, advertisements, there is a question of how uh, the official sponsors are going to feel and whether this partnership between the official sponsors and the games are going to be affected uh, moving forward, say, for Tokyo 2020, uh, looking ahead in four years' time. So, yeah, that's that's a general idea of what Rule 40 is about. And the reason why Rule 40 would exist is, uh, the argument here is that it allows the committee to have exclusive partnerships and then that, of course, allows the games to be financed um, and an incentive for athletes in need around the world. Is this... A fair trade-off. I mean, I'm sure Under Armour would have something different to say <laughs> compared to, say, Coca-Cola, but um, is it a fair trade-off? Hard to say. <laughs> I, I think commercially, we'll need to see how Rule 40 evolves. Um, I think this is the first one, isn't it? Leslie? Yes, it I is. Remember we it is. discussed about this. So this is the first time, the first Olympics, we are seeing the new Rule 40 involved. Maybe after Rio, we'll, we'll know better. Uh, thus far, from our readings... We have not heard of any murmurings and complaints from the main sponsors. Maybe not yet. Uh, but to be fair, uh, looking at the the logos and the um, partnership of the main sponsors, they're still all over the place. You you can see them all over, very visible names. And the Olympics is a huge pie. I Correct. mean, that would be my argument. Yeah. It's mm. a gigantic I mean, pie. Yeah. If I were a, a brand, I would definitely want to be uh, associated with the Olympic Games. It is the largest yeah. uh, sporting er event in the world in terms of the size, the scale, the range of events, uh, the audience, the, the worldwide yes, broadcasting, the money yeah. being generated yeah. from it. And I think the only other event that's comparable um, is probably the FIFA World Cup. Yep. Yeah, it's not yes. even the Commonwealth Games. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> Uh, so other than shoes and jerseys, where else can sponsors put their brand? Where else are we likely to see you know, those logos, those taglines during the games? Well, um, uh, uh, the, the few which we can think of uh, seems to be still uh, perhaps uncontrolled. will be like the watch, for example, or wearing a, a pair of uh, Oakley specs, Oakley glasses, uh, shades, Oakley shades. These are still... Very much in the athletes' control. I mean, when the athletes run, the athletes will say, I need shades because it's so bright. I, I foresee one day if someone is really creative, they'll create some kind of temporary tattoo, you know, stick on the athlete's face or something like that. You'll never know. But I will say this, Lin, actually, while these so-called rules are, and that's the reason why I use the word so-called, so-called rules seems to uh, disallow athletes to prominently put up their sponsors. But unfortunately, it also depends on the bargaining power, uh, which is something hard. It's hard for us to talk because different athletes got different bargaining power. So, but one classic example is Mr. Usain Bolt. Uh, he's clearly sponsored by Puma. He's, he's made it very clear about that. But uh, whether or not he's uh, allowed to wear uh, Puma during the games, I, I think probably yes because he's, he's Bolt. Usain Bolt. Yeah, Usain yeah. Bolt. Yeah. 
So um, uh, while we try to see, oh, you know, the rules, we say, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. But we've seen some athletes get away with it, you know, and I think it's purely because of the charisma and the, uh, the status of the athlete. So there you go. Yeah, and I think marketing agencies have really, really stepped up their game in terms of um, being very creative on how brands uh, are put forth. They've gone to the extent where they've created um, animated videos, uh, they create their own hashtags, they write on colours uh, to promote certain brands, they get the, the, you know, the, the colour to be very, very closely associated to the brand and whatnot. So that's a, a very commercial uh, answer, not, not very much a legal answer. Considering that there's only really the Olympics and then there's the World Cup, are there enough sporting events to A, make the current sponsorship model sustainable and B, um, provide enough, I guess, precedent to work these issues out? Because if there are only a few events that are this big um, that will have these quote-unquote rules applying to them, and then do we actually have enough, enough material from which to come up with a framework, a legal framework? Lynn, can I ask you, first, are you referring to track and field or generally any... Um, generally anything Well um, Off the cuff uh, um, We have the Winter Olympics um, And then um, The regional games You know like uh, American games And the ASEAN, ASEAN games mm-hmm. There's and also ne- the World Championships uh, World Championship for the athletes uh, uh, World Championship for badminton um, Then the annual Year-end tennis uh, Well So-called ATP finals. I won't, I won't call it Grand Slam. The, yeah. the Grand Slam or Grand, Grand Slam, yeah. you know, yeah, ATP finals. Uh, the, yes, that's that's how they can sustain. And then even in uh, athlete, uh, uh, athletic, sorry, athletic, there are races where it's called the uh, million dollar race or the gold bar race, where every time an athlete run and you hit a record or you 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 finish top three, you get X amount of ringgit, and that. Uh, races broadcasted all over the world. Uh, that's other ways to do it. Of course, as we said earlier, nothing is bigger than Olympics. That's no doubt about that. But there are other fairly large uh, tournaments to, to, to sustain the sponsorship. And then working out the rules for the Olympics, will it always be a little bit slow because it takes four years to kind of see where things are? You have to wait after that to see whether whether sponsors complain. You have to kind of weigh things out. And it is really every four years. So will it take a while for there to, for there to be sort of a, a negotiation, you know, and an arrival at a new framework or at a sustainable framework? Well, to be fair to the IOC, um, they have evolved from the days when... Uh, the 1980 Olympics in Moscow and 84 uh, Olympics in Los Angeles. Those, those, the beginning of the commercialization of sports at the time, uh, or that kind of sports at the time. Uh, they have you off slowly, um, but but you're right. I think for the testing period, they can only test it once every four years. But having said that, they are filled with very experienced people. Um, they have other satellite tournaments going on at the same time, you know, like the qualifying tournaments and uh, they have the uh, time time race tournaments. So the, the, the IOC is always around. It's so not they the same see. though. You're right. Of course. In, yeah. in terms of the sheer volume and size. Uh, but yeah, once every four years, they get some things correct, some things not so correct. And then the next tournament they do it. I, I must say the last uh, Olympics in London was really good. Really, really well organized. You know, uh, kudos to the organizers and IOC. Uh, the, I, I recall one really not so good tournament uh, is Atlanta in '96. Yeah. You know, that was really full of problems. Despite CNN and Coca Cola base, there were they had so much issues. And I'm concerned of Rio. 
because they're already murmuring. Think, yes. yeah. Everybody is concerned <laughs> with the rear. Yeah, you know, the pool is turning green, the bus is coming late. <laughs> yeah, the apartments are inhabitable. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a worry, yeah. Earlier this year, coming back home, um, it wasn't clear whether some whether Lee Chong Wei would be in the podium program um, because of his personal sponsorships. Um, firstly, what is the podium program, and secondly, what are the possible reasons that this would have happened? You know, um, speaking generally. So the uh, podium program uh, was is a program under the uh, National Sports in- Institute uh, under YB Kyrie. So it was an initiative by the uh, Ministry of Youth and Sports to produce uh, podium winners uh, consistently and continuously uh, for major uh, championships. So uh, there was this issue uh, because Chongwei was hesitating uh, to sign a contract for the podium program. And uh, from what we understand, uh, there was possibly a conflict of interest uh, between his personal uh, sponsorships. Uh, He, of course, owes certain obligations and responsibilities to his own sponsors. Uh, and of course, the podium program also has their own uh, batch of sponsors, and I think it was it got a little bit complicated because the podium program doesn't only involve Chongwei. Uh, it involved a, a whole range of uh, other badminton players who then in turn had their personal sponsors to deal with. So I think it, it, the whole issue at the back of it was perhaps an issue of conflict of interest. And I suppose one way to go about it is that parties would actually have to sit down and negotiate uh, the terms of the contract to see if there are any exceptions where maybe Chong Wei for a certain period could do certain things uh, for the sponsors of the podium podium program. But for the rest of his time, he would, of course, be obliged to his own sponsors and whatnot. Uh, but I can't comment uh, specifically on, on Chong Wei's uh, situation. But I do understand that eventually he did sign uh, for the podium program. Besides corporate sponsorships and government support, are there any other avenues for athletes to make money without having to take a day job? Because, you know, we've been talking about sponsorship and marketing, and the reason why is because sports is lucrative, um, but sometimes athletes can suffer in the midst of it. There are few ways for athletes who can go beyond sponsorship and government support. Um, one is, for example, appearing as a pundit, you know, or, or coming to BFM to speak <laughs> you know, and get paid for it. But appearing on television as pundits is one of it. Uh, appearance fee, uh, I think some of us may not realise, but some tournaments in Malaysia, uh, the athlete is actually engaged to come and take part. Whether the, uh, he or she wins is irrespective. Uh, not an issue, but please come. Uh, so some athletes are paid um, just to appear. So you actually make money that way. Um, for those athletes who are not fairly known, uh, not very uh, up in the top rank yet, uh, the athletes will probably be able to do coaching, training. Um, uh, they can become uh, very good, uh, motivating speakers. Uh, there's there's some money to be made there. Of course, not a lot, but there are opportunities there. There's also endorsements. I was just thinking, um, you know, out of curiosity, you have someone like Lee Chong Wei who is... Um, marketable because of his status within the sport, you know, world number one, um, our Malaysian number one for who knows how long now. Um, and that's that's Lee Chong Wei. On the other hand, you have someone like David Beckham, who was never the best at his sport, but who was a deeply marketable player. So when we're talking about um, money-making opportunities and, and things like sponsorships, things like marketing, at this point in time, and this is just, it's not really a legal question, but in your view, is it better to be a Lee Chong Wei or to be a David Beckham in terms of making money outside your sport? Of course, David Beckham. Nothing against Chong Wei. I think Chong Wei's lawyer who hear this <laughs> will well, be okay, upset let, with let's, me. Let's, but, let's yeah. not do David Beckham then. Um, someone like 
Lionel Messi, who is, you know, some might say the best football player of his generation, mm. but who is not as marketable on a very basic level yeah. um, as David Beckham. So let's, let's you know, take Chongwei out of the <laughs> equation then. So uh, Lionel Messi and David Beckham, is it better at this point in time to be the most talented or is it better to be the most marketable? Um, I think for an athlete, uh, you want to be the best, of course. But for the sponsor's point of view, you always want to find a man or the woman who is most uh, uh, marketable for your product. So for an athlete, eventually when he or she is eyeing retirement, then they want to make make sure that they are marketable. Everyone wants to be David Beckham yeah, at the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Beckham is, uh, I think he will be the only one. I don't think anybody else can copy what he's, yeah. he's doing. And he's got a brilliant partner and his wife, uh, Victoria, has made sure that He's marketable, you know, and despite he's got a, a fairly uh, funny, squeaky voice, <laughs> but uh, he's been able to uh, camouflage that with his good looks. So there you go. And the reason why people seek uh, avenues outside of sport is, of course, because it's a short career. Mm. Um, and on top of that, injuries and poor performances can undermine that already very brief career. So how else can they capitalize on their talents? Well, on, on this point, it's not really about capitalizing, but I can share that I think athletes must really seriously look at sports insurance. Um, we have a fair bit of Malaysian insurance companies uh, developing this area, and I think one or two have developed it and, and have products about it. Uh, we are keeping a close eye on those products, really good products. And athletes really should allocate an, a certain amount of their income to buy this sports insurance, which usually is about injury. So a classic one is um, uh, in, in UK, Dean Ashton, a really talented young footballer, uh, grew up uh, through crew and then went to Norwich uh, and then eventually ended up in West Ham. And in one of the training matches uh, playing for England, uh, unfortunately someone broke his leg. Uh, he recovered, but he never fully recovered and eventually was forced to retire because of that. And I think he was like less than 25 years old. But because he had a decent amount of insurance, uh, sports insurance, he while he, he he didn't become wealthy, but he was covered for a certain amount of uh, time. Are you insuring yourself for your potential or for your existing, um, I guess, proof of concept as such? You know, do you have to prove your talent, or are you saying, well, potentially I could earn this much? Uh, no, there are many kinds of insurance. The first insurance we are talking about is purely about injuries, which any athlete can take up. Of course, the more uh, risky your your sports is, the bigger you are, the more big games you play, then your premium will go up. I, th I can imagine uh, Ronaldo's and Messi's insurance will be far higher than a uh, Malaysian second division player. You know? So for a career-ending injury, for example, Cristiano Ronaldo, we are assuming, would likely be covered. Well, he'll probably get a certain amount of money, uh, but I'm not sure how much. Of course, none of us have access to his contracts, but uh, definitely he will earn some or gain some compensation. You know, uh, But I think knowing people like them, they'd rather continue playing. But people like Ronaldo, no problem. Even if he retires tomorrow, his sponsorship around him, he will sustain. A club in China will buy him. Yeah. <laughs> he will be fine. <laughs> That's true. Athletes also have to balance between pleasing their sponsors and wearing the right gear for their performance. Um, what advice would you offer an athlete who is maybe not super happy um, about their sponsor's gear, but they can't afford to turn down a sponsorship? 
Oh, well, I would say first things uh, first, uh, sit down and, and talk to the sponsor. I think explain to them uh, the situation because the very fact that they are sponsoring you, I think from the start, they, they believed in the athlete uh, to a certain extent. And of course, they want you to be successful because... Uh, the success of the athlete is only going to uh, help the brand and the company that's sponsoring. So I think first things first, sit down and then speak. So say if I'm a um, track and field athlete and I find that you know my running shoes is, is not uh, sitting very well, it's eating into my toes or I get huge blisters at the back. And I think you just speak. Uh, to the sponsor and, and see if there's a way you can rectify it. Of course, I concede if you're not uh, like Rafael Nadal or uh, Roger Federer where uh, Babalot and Wilson tailors a specific record uh, according to exactly what they need for their game. But I, I do think by speaking to the sponsors, uh, I'm sure something can be worked out. Yeah. I think so too. <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking today with sports lawyers Richard Wee and Leslie Lim. We've been talking about Olympics and sponsorship and ambush marketing and just all manner of things to do with sports and money today. You have been listening to Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.